Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today is a very special episode because Graham is making me record the intro directly after having done the podcast because we don't normally do this and he has to politely remind me over and over and over again that we need to do it and then I do it begrudgingly but then it ends up always being awesome. But this is one of the few times where I'm getting to do it directly afterwards. So, uh, Graham, I hate you. And also, Graham, thank you, because this is how we should do it if we want to be professional. Um, This podcast was incredible. Uh, It was one of my favorite that I've done in a long time. And it was with uh, my friend named Monsal, who uh, takes people on what he calls sacred hunts. His website is called sacredhunting.com. Is that right? Yes, it is. That's correct. And he's one of the most unique people that I've met in that he is 31, which I am too. And he's the only 31 year old who I have met who is as possessed by his daemon to do his specific thing this early in his life as I am in a way that is weird and unusual. But uh, his dharma is clearly intertwined with... um, helping bring people into contact with the felt godness of nature um, to help heal people's relationship with their consumerism around how they eat and how they waste and how disconnected they are from their food. And he's committed his life to uh, being in right relationship with animals and uh, learning from indigenous hunter-gatherer cultures and collecting their myths and their practices. And you really get to know someone when you get to see how they live. And I've been to his apartment and it's honestly one of the most inspirational apartments I've ever seen. And also is one of the apartments that most people I know if they saw, they would, um, I don't know what they would feel, but it would not be admiration or inspiration. It's the way he lives is so counter American consumerism. It's very bare, the bare essentials. Uh, He's got a lot of um, totems to animals. He's got a beautiful snake, two cats, and he only eats what he's hunted. And it's, it's like, he's the real deal. And this was a really special episode because we got to get into the mythopoetic nature of um, to be in relationship with animals in the way that hunter and gatherers were and how different it is from our culture where our primary relationship to trying to stay alive is not to be in relationship with the soil or plants or um, animals. It's to be in relationship to money. And we riffed on that for a while Um, he shared his story about what brought him to prison and what he learned in prison. And then we got to talk about his story of a year and a half ago, he made the plans to go to Russia to uh, track and and just be in the presence of the Siberian tiger. And when that trip actually happened, it was a week after Russia had invaded Ukraine. And he was on the last plane into Russia that was allowed to come into Russia. And he got to be in Russia during the war and got to encounter a 600 pound Siberian tiger. So it's a pretty cool story. And um, it was a great episode.
I think you'll like it. And if you want to support the podcast, uh, share this with people that you think it will resonate with. And if you want to stay connected to my journey, uh, check out my newsletter at ericgazzi.com. Every Friday I share uh, whatever is going on in my life with the with links to the books I'm reading or the podcast that I'm checking out or the quotes that I'm chewing on. And there's a journal prompt at the end of each one to shake up your fucking life a little bit, you know, because I do it to me too. Um, I really appreciate in the age of uh, pandemonium that you come here and you listen. Uh, I'll never take it for granted. And I love y'all. Please enjoy the myth of Monsal. Monsal, thank you for coming on the podcast and also thank you for enduring the weird mood that I'm in for the last 23 minutes. You've handled it like almost like someone who is an expert at being out in nature and listening to what nature is doing and then being in flow with it. Uh, I'm excited to have you on the podcast, brother. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure to get to know you personally. Yeah, so I've met Monsal through a men's group here in Austin where uh, I can feel my mind wants to go on a diatribe, a diatribe of joking about the cliches that people might have about like the being an Austin entrepreneur starter pack. But instead of doing it, I'll talk about doing it and get back to the main song. Guys, I'm in a weird mood today. Um, and one of the things that stood out to me is uh, almost everyone in the group is like in their 40s and you and I are the two young, almost confused, why are we here people. And so we really connected in the first couple of meetings with the like, do you know why we're here? I don't know why we're here. Uh, and then I very soon learned why you were here. Uh, it's in it's incredible how connected you are to nature and animals and indigenous ways of living and that you embody it to the degree that you do. Cause I've been to your house. You are the real deal through and through with like how you live and what you do. And it just, it feels like it makes no sense how someone your age could be like this. And I often actually get that a lot from people about me and that, it's just curious to see someone else who from like a Dharma career is really has like found their Dharma fully early and has, I'm, I'm sure you had moments where you resisted it, but you're one of the people that I know who is the youngest that I know who is fully in their Dharma in the way that maybe I self delusionally think that I am too. And it's really cool to see. And it almost, it's, it's like my eyes are like, I, I can't understand what I'm seeing. And so I'm excited to have you on the podcast. And I would love to hear about anything that comes up from that reflection. And then we'll kind of get into some of the questions I like to ask. Well, I just feel a lot of warmth that you provided that reflection. And uh, I, could, I could say so many similar things about the way that you show up. And also... I view myself as such a weirdo. So the Same. fact that somebody sees it in a way that's, uh, yeah, in a positive light. Admirable. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Cause let me tell you, there's, there's a plenty of people who come see all the dead things and 
my excitement for sharing all that that just doesn't doesn't resonate and that's totally cool so i appreciate it yeah carl jung has this idea that i i resonated with since i read it and he talks about it in the introduction of the red book he talks about like each of us have two spirits in us one is the spirit of the times and one is the spirit of the depths and our dharma song is coming from the spirit of the depths like for some people, their dharma is going to be so out of tune with the times that they're in, where you know the natural disposition of social tribal animals when they see someone not acting in the same song that they've all chained themselves to, consciously or unconsciously, there's going to be judging or mocking or whatever. And um, <clears throat> the spirit of the depths in me is always looking for other people that are like playing the song of the spirit of their depths and uh what you do speak so loudly i cannot hear what you say and that's why i love that's why i really enjoyed seeing how you lived like it's it is in alignment with the spirit of your depths and also there's going to be a transformation that's going to be beautiful when you have a beloved that's going to start to live with you because he's <laughs> yeah that's one of the Carl Jung didn't talk about how people in 2020 would have to merge the spirit of their depths with like nice hand towels in their bathroom. Mm -hmm. All right, so the first question that I love to start with is, um, what is your earliest first memory? That's different than the question I thought you were gonna ask. Yeah, my- Welcome to the myths that make us. Yeah, my first memories I don't know what this says about me or just the don't human worry, condition. <laughs> yeah, I I imagine that we as humans identify negative things quickly or earlier, and they're just more intense, maybe. Yeah. So I'm kind of just adding some context that I love my parents very, very much, and <laughs> my first memories were definitely intensity around my dad's alcoholism. And I remember real, real early him essentially chasing my mom and I out of the house. Uh, not angry. He just wanted to like drive places or do something with me when I was really young that my mom didn't want me to participate in. And so yeah, a lot of my earliest memories were hiding behind a car, looking at my dad being in the emergency room after he accidentally hurt my mom or something like that. Um, and then given my relationship to animals, this might be interesting. One of the first memories I have was getting out of a car and looking up this hill where my house was and these two giant German shepherds just come running down the hill and they tore me up a bit. Uh, when I was like, I don't know, probably five or six years old. And they were my neighbor's dogs that just got out and they were pretty violent. Uh, so they got into me. And yeah, those are the first things that come to mind as being clear, vivid. Where did you live? Uh, in that moment with the dogs, I was yeah. in St. Louis, Missouri. What's interesting, and I can already feel like a mythopoetic cocoon weaving it's going to be interesting to see where this goes but one of the things that you shared with me before the podcast started is that uh, a book that you are in love with that we are going to be talking about at some point 
called tiger. One of the core ideas in it is that when this tiger eats a human, it starts to like absorb like the sentience or God forbid we use the word codes, but you know, our DNA is code um, of the human. And the way that like, I feel like most people wouldn't have said they got into me, which was interesting. And it feels like there's some tracking already happening um, that like the wild got into you, you know, it, 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 it broke through the zoo of domestication that most of us live in. And like, there was just this like touch of wild that tore into you. Mm. Well, you are extremely articulate in that way. I love that. I, to that point, it's interesting in the book, there's a, tiger biologist that gets bit by a tiger he gets thrashed by one and he survives but for like two years afterwards he has these incredible sexual urges that he attributed to the tiger bite which for context like tigers have always been very correlated with sexual energy mm. you know the term viagra is the sanskrit word viagra for tiger Whoa. And so I love shit like that. Yay. Yeah. That feels very good in my brain. <laughs> and so it's 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 you know, for that guy, he like the tiger's essence yeah. got into him and he was living that out. And I had never thought about it in those terms. But yeah, those were one of my first memories was was having that. And I thought it's interesting how my relationship with dogs now, people think that I'm scared of dogs. I just have a healthy respect for a predator. Right. I I don't I, I have I give them space, I'm mindful with them, etc. But I'm like that with every animal. Yeah. It's really interesting. Something that I've seen specifically with dogs is that I think because we've been genetically modifying them through uh conscious selection, um, that we've selected for traits in dogs that have been close to humans, uh, of like I'm not even going to pretend to give a word to it, but some of the things that I've seen with dogs specifically is that if the dog is trained from its earliest life to um, that it just, it knows deep down, like if I bite a human hand, I get punished. But if I don't bite a human hand, you know, I'm fed and it like, it's, it's dope. That what I've seen with really well-trained dogs, um, almost the truth is I've, I've only met like one really well-trained dog and it was a hunting dog and so, right. And so like it, it both had to learn to live with humans, but it also got to be in the wild and like it and express it's like inner image and it's inner yearning. And that, um, when people are timid with dogs, it's like, it confuses the dogs because they've been, I'm not going to pretend to know the inner experience of a dog, but it seems to be that we have bred them in a way where they feel lost without like a pack leader that, and that if they're forced to be the alpha, it's confusing and dysregulating. So that's just an interesting side note. Which most dogs are, you know, emotional friends of people. They're not being led. Right. Hunt, the hunting dog is being led by an alpha, right? Which I have pretty 
you know, extensive experience with dogs and with hunting dogs specifically, it's a completely different ball game. Yeah. It feels different for both parties. 100%. How, when you think about the memory of the two dogs running down the hill and uh, getting into you, what's the story that you told yourself? Like, how did you make sense of that when you were young? I don't remember, I don't, I don't really remember having much of a, a disdain towards them or like an emotional negativity towards dogs, which to other people was somewhat surprising. I imagine it somewhat reflects the guilt that my parents felt, but my parents would speak about the dog in a manner that was It was a bad situation. Dogs are, you know, this is why you shouldn't have dogs in the house because I never grew up with pets or anything like that. I always thought of it as like, it's a pretty cool, like German Shepherds are some of my favorite animals still as far as dogs are concerned. So if somehow I had this kind of opposite reaction to this quote unquote negative experience where I'm somewhat drawn to the thing that's into me. <laughs> The thing that can kill you, yeah. Um, I'm what, very drawn to things that can kill me. Right. <laughs> and uh, you asked me to pry before the beginning of the podcast, and uh, I'm going to offer a safe word of Siberian husky if it starts to get too much. But um, one of the things that does genuinely come up is, so our it's so true for all of us that we know the cliche and we rebel against the cliche but our inter like our psychic attachment fabric like how it feels and what it looks like of how we attach to everything is influenced by mom and dad and that because dad seems like he was this force that was simultaneously dangerous but also like he loved me that there is an interesting like similar fabric weave in the relationship of wanting to uh you know be behind the proverbial car at a distance of a thing that can kill me that i also love and have respect for and i think that that's a beautiful and interesting alchemy of uh of having a parent that you know for better or for worse displayed the part of the human condition where it's like i might kill you you know like i'm i'm i might through my own lack of conscious intent with my power kill you you know and i think phys physically the fear that showed up in some of those moments as a child was similar to what the fear might look like for an animal that could kill me 100 percent it's almost like we are animals and we do a lot of shit to pretend like we're not. Um, what do you remember being the first story either read to you or movie scene or a book that you read as a kid that really like grabbed your imagination? The first thing that comes to mind is the Ramayana my mother's from India and she never fully told or read the stories in a way that, you know, was book from end to end. 
but it was little bits of the Ramayana would come through as she would share things. And for those who don't know, the Ramayana is one of the sacred Hindu texts. And it, in, in retrospect, what I found interesting was like Hinduism, as opposed to most monotheistic religions, there's still a connection to a lot of the animist beliefs around like good and bad, quote unquote, are together. They're not separate. There's not a devil and a God. They're kind of together. And so I just remember growing up with these stories of extreme virtue of Rama paired with some of his humanness and his and the elements like the animalness. Yeah. Uh, and I always, my mother was not Hindu. My father, my father grew up Mormon. My mother grew up Hindu, but both of them were not practicing. What an interesting combination. But they had some of the cultural elements. Right. And so they would kind of come out in little bits and little pieces. And even still to this day, I think, think about and have a pretty close relationship to some of the Hindu sacred texts, whether it be the Ramayana or especially the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. The interesting thing that's weaving for me is uh, the common denominator that you and I have that is probably not a common denominator amongst most people that we know is that our early stories were old myths. Like that's also what I grew up on was like reading Greek and Norse mythology. And that was, and there's something like my intuition is that stories that last for thousands of years very likely have like core elements, like core archetypical vibration or threads in them that like if the human nervous system was like a plant, those stories are the just right fertilizer you know, and that there's, like I love the idea of having a hero god, like have the trickster archetype inside of it, which is one of the things that most other cultures had that Christianity doesn't, is uh, like the trickster archetype is an amalgamation of the light and the dark in this not malicious way, that has this element of like, there is no meaning here, LOL. And that there's a, I guess one way to say it is maybe one of the best antidotes to the current spiritual zeitgeist is for people to download a trickster archetype. So some of the spiritual egoism can be popped just a little bit where there's this naive, like, unquenchable reflex to f make meaning out of everything. This is something I actually riffed on with Graham uh, on my birthday when I did Wachuma and I was out on the land for a while and then I came home and I was trying to explain to him like, uh, and you know, he's so gracious to hear me talk, you know, and like work through some of my ideas. But one of the things that I was talking about is like, I see the magic of the psyche 
as like the uh, force inside of a tree that's doing everything it possibly can with what is happening to the tree to make it as much of what it's meant to be as it can possibly be. And that like 70% of our lives, maybe 80% of our lives is that inner force that does make meaning out of everything. And that there is an interesting unconscious thing inside of you that is moving from a place of meaning on your behalf that is benevolent, that's trying to weave everything in your favor. But that tree is also in an environment where there is actual chance that happens and that there is some degree of our life. And I think the number I said was like, let's say just like 3% of the remaining 30 is like actual chance. And that sometimes people just slip and smash their head and there is no meaning. And sometimes people are born into incredibly cruel situations that they did not choose. And this is all a guess because I can't ever actually know. And that there's something about the trickster archetype in mythology that like introduces that element of like a part of this is chance and there isn't meaning. And it's something that I think is missing in uh, our current spiritual attempt to create myth in a culture that has no coherent mythopoetic thread through it. And what I got from Greek mythology was this deep sense of... Um, do your best and do not confuse yourself with being equal to the gods. You know, so like from my very earliest years, there was this like metaphysical principle of like, don't be arrogant, like be great, but know that you're a human and that there are forces beyond you that if you ever, you know, could think that you're equal to or above, watch out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing that comes up that definitely excites and sticks with me a little bit is the, the, and well, you weren't here for this conversation, but in the men's group, we had kind of a conversation around preparing and how civilization might go and things like that. And I kept bringing up the possibility that we could be completely obliterated. Not in a be scared perspective, but like this is a reality. And it seemed like, and this just seems like a general trend, the Judeo-Christian values emphasize so much that it's it's a little bit, there's like a... a especially in spiritual realms, there seems to be an insistence on, well, it might be bad, but it'll be eventually it'll manifest in positive ways or something like that. And we're the chosen one. And yes. We are a part of the chosen group. Right. We'll, we'll make it. Animist cultures, I'm, I, as much as I grew up with a lot of these Hindu myths, I'm far more interested in my adult life in animist cultures, hunter-gatherer beliefs and things like that. And it is so mixed. It, it, like everything is all in one pot. You know, the God, and say, I mean, same with I mean, Zeus on the one side can be this God of gods. And on the other side, he's tricking mortal women 
to have sex with them, essentially raping them. He rapes. Yeah. So there's this contrast within the single being that exists almost universally in the Native American culture, South, you know, basically pre-heavy agricultural cultures. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I've wondered about is Judeo-Christian culture came from deeply entrenched agricultural civilizations. Yeah. And that has an impact on the myths that they needed to survive. Yep. Whereas we evolved most of our history as hunter-gatherers and there are different myths inherent to those belief systems. Yeah, and this is a really interesting point, and it's something that I'm going to ask you to riff on because um, you shared it with me in a text message, and I've heard this perspective, and I love it. And uh, to kind of set the stage real quick, myths on some level, their function and potency depends on the environment that the human tribe is trying to navigate and be fit within. And so as that environment changes, quote unquote, new gods start to be born and they like compete in the idea realm with the old gods and there's transmutation and evolution and integration and sometimes complete die off. And that uh, there are gods now in our time now competing with each other, trying to make sense of the environment that we're in. But one of the most interesting ideas that I've heard which is the one that you talked about in the text that you sent me, is this idea that pre-agriculture, our environment demanded that we have a type of myth structure where we honored the animal. And that once the plow, specifically the plow, got invented, it moved the burden from us to the animal. And in order for us to even function with what we were doing to the animals this new cast of gods had to arise that moved the center of loci you know l-o-c-i uh from being in relation to the animal to being the master of the animal um i'm sorry that i said that you would be able to explain it and i just started going down it, but i would love for you to share how you see that and then we'll get more into it yeah well I think one of the best examples is one of the main draws that brought me to Far East Russia and tracking the Siberian tiger because... During their war with Ukraine, and we'll get into that story. Yeah. The, the Being in the hunting world in the United States, one of the things that I find is almost universally, and now it's actually really hard to find no matter where I go in the world, who I talk to in the world, predators, large charismatic predators like wolves, mountain lions, they're, they're so controversial. People who live by the land in some regard, farmers, ranchers, things like that in the United States, mostly don't have positive opinions of these kinds of predators and they want to eradicate them. People who live in the city who are relatively clueless as to the relationship that one could have with these wild animals are the ones who are very pro keeping them around. One thing I found so compelling around 
the Siberian tiger is over in Far East Russia, there's a native tribe called the Udigay. And the Udigay's belief around the tiger, they call it Amba. And that literally translates to God, but also a ghoul. It was this wow. like demon type figure that was, that was, it was both a God, but if you crossed it, would devour your soul. And it's very taboo for the Udigay to harm in any way the tiger. And, and it's also taboo for the tiger to harm any humans. So there's almost a pact or kind of a, a, yeah, a way of living together. And when Udigay have their dogs eaten by tigers, which happens often, their perspective is it's an offering to God. And there's examples of Udigay who move from certain areas when a tiger is very active. It's their way of propitiating the animal, which is such a contrast to the way that we treat, you know, predators. And I'm surprised by and encouraged by and inspired by the fact that their culture has somehow maintained that disposition despite thousands of years of influence, especially through Russian czarist times and the Soviet Union. I think partially it's because they're just so far away from every, everything that's in you know the western part of the country. But that's a that's kind of a reflection or a, a micro example of why I'm so interested in learning from these cultures because I think some of these perspectives and relationships are a they indicate something that's very important for our species in terms of how we relate to some of these animals. Yeah. But also there's there's ways in which we can bring that into our modern existence. But that's kind of the, that's just an example. There's tr throughout basically all the cultures, the people who have gone on long fasting experiences know what it's like to be hungry. And when a culture, like a hunter-gatherer culture, is so heavily dependent on animals for their existence, we, we, we have some sense of what it means to be grateful for our food when we go through some kind of fasting or prolonged you know, non-eating experience. And that's kind of the pragmatic reason why the, the evolution of this this deep reverence and love for source of life yeah. comes from. And I can tap into it more because that's been kind of my work for the past half decade or so has been being in relationship to those animals yeah. at a, at a visceral level, you know, putting the knife in an animal, loving it, so deeply and being so saddened and so viscerally impacted by killing it while at the same time knowing I need to take responsibility for the food that I'm eating. I need yeah. to see this. I need to be a part of this. So uh, both poles held together. A really interesting thread that I feel coming through is it's like 
the relationship that births the functional myths for a people and a time it comes from the relationship between the people and what they and their nervous system identifies as the source of life. And that we're in this interesting situation, like modern domesticated people, where our, we have been, uh, depending on what emotional disposition you want to come at it from, you could say designed or tricked or uh, just grew up with the belief that like the thing that we are attached to is money. That in as a domesticated animal, uh, we believe our primary relationship is with money. That culture is such a consistent, stable thing and that, you know, the God of the suburbs and the God of the highway and the God of the internet and all those things are stable enough and that they all depend on this fundamental relationship with this thing that we, that most people don't call capital, they just call money. And so like our myths are uh, handicapped, hunchback of Notre Dame twisted myths are trying to make sense of this weird non-natural like relationship with the source of our what we think is the source of our life which is money and there's this interesting thing that i see where um people who go through experiences and then develop competencies where their primary survival relationship is not with money because they either know how to grow their own food or get their own food or they know how to take care of land in a way where they're not dependent on these old or these or these new gods is they get the opportunity to like explore different myths especially people who like one of the things that i admire the most about you that i want to integrate into my life at some point is like almost all the food that you eat you know is in relationship with life like you hunt your own food you take the responsibility of feeling the burden of killing an animal but a part of what comes with killing that animal is not a single goddamn thing is wasted and not a single meal goes by that there's not this like relationship and respect and admiration and responsibility and from people inside of our culture who on some level know that the primary relationship to money is absolutely false and then all the gods that come out of that relationship, those people stuck in that pantheon uh, are afraid and judge. And depending on their emotional disposition, one far spectrum is just like a mild categorizing as weird. And then the super extreme is like they use... Uh, discriminatory words like prepper or whatever the thing is and it's one of the things that has been really alive in me right now is this disposition to use exiling language without realizing how significant using that type of language is but people are so flippant in their use of discriminatory terms for other groups of people that they don't agree with and there's this weird schizophrenic 
uh, lack of self-awareness that there are uh, groups within our culture whose self-identity is based off of being discriminated that use discrimination in a way where they don't uh, claim that they are or if they claim and they accept that they are, they make the argument that it's worth it. And there's this great quote that I forgot, but uh, it's the masters, uh, we shall not use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. Because the idea is that if you use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, you become the new master using the old tools. You know, and that there's this idea of um, if you use hate to drive out hate, you build a house created by hate. If you use discrimination to overcome discrimination, you create a house built on discrimination. And um, it's just an interesting thing that uh, there's a level of freedom that you have that I think most people don't have and don't know. And because there's a level of freedom that they can feel, there's probably some judgment but it's because, uh, or at least one thread about why there is that judgment is because it's like there's this force inside of us that knows that the way that we live our lives right now is uh, off. And when we see someone that's less off, it creates tension inside of us. Yeah, first I wanna just address how gifted you are at articulating things. This is one of the reasons why having this conversation is so beautiful because I'll probably listen to it again and hear my bouncing off the walls with examples and then get your succinct analysis of it. So thank you. Thank you. And yeah, I think freedom, confidence in some regards, I've, oh, I've described it as there's a completely different level of confidence that I felt in myself and, and it was something that I was definitely seeking when I wanted to hunt from understanding that the source of life was not money. It's, it, it changes, it cha I'll speak for myself, it changed myself and I now have years of experience of facilitating others where it changes others. And it's virtually impossible to experience that intellectually like one has to yeah i don't think it is possible to experience yeah, to it to viscerally go through that process and then eat it and then allow you know all the changes in our neurochemistry to show up as a result and that has been arguably one of the greatest gifts that i've received from it is just being able to step outside of the the paradigm of as much as is possible for right. this stage of my development, right. stepping outside of a lot of the monetary money oriented belief systems. And it's opened me up to, to seeing things that are, you know, like Charles Eisenstein's thinking resonates so much with me. I don't think that it would be possible for me to resonate with his way of thinking if I did, wasn't able to step outside of the money system. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, that, there's a really interesting thing that I see in the spiritual community where uh, there's a reignition of, or like a reanimation 
or like a repassioning of um, bringing back the old gods. And I think that there's some great utility in there. One of the interesting things that I see is there's a deification of money in a way that is interesting. I don't know if it's bad, but it feels weird where like in the spiritual community, there's this like one thing that the spiritual community has gotten really right is the potency and the transformational gnosis that can comes from that can come from ritual. Like ritual is one of the things that uh it doesn't care whether or not you believe. If you step into it, it will change you. And to like take conscious control of creating the rituals that you bring into your life is one of the great tools that we can harness to transform ourselves. And it's the essence of having like a mythopoetic relationship to this thing that we call gods. I'm seeing that skill set used to like create like a deification of money where, you know, it's like uh, heal your money wounds or um, like, uh, you know, transmit abundance codes and things like that. And I think I'm just, I'm thinking about this in real time. Um, it feels like if you haven't metaprogrammed that primary relationship to money as being the source of life and you build a deification on top of that bridge to money, that feels like a fucking trap, you know, like that uh, star fox toad, danger, it's a trap, uh, is the meme that pops up in my mind. But it feels like if you can teach yourself that you can, that the primary connection to life is life, is the soil, the plants, the air, the animals, and that that's the foundation. If you want to play the game of weaving whatever stories or rituals to call in abundance or whatever, um, that seems like less of a trap. My perspective, for better or for worse, money has never been one of the things that I thought I needed to do a lot of work around. Um, I came from two parents that were uh, in the military. It felt like we were poor growing up, like we lived in military housing and it was just known, don't ask for things at the store. Um, and for a long time, you know, I navigated life with very little money, but I always had this feeling of, if I get really good at the things that I love and I point that, getting goodness towards helping people, it's gonna take care of itself. Um, and it feels like that works and that might be a more direct way to, this is a rabbit hole that we don't need to go down, but I appreciate you guys holding space for it. Um, but to bring it back, uh, what of the, you have so much juicy stuff in your life that's been happening in the last couple of years, but you also have a really juicy like past that I think could be medicine for people. So I wanna give you the creative directional insight of like taking us through whatever part of your past feels like it would be medicine for the listeners. And then we can arrive kind of at the present moment where you went on one of the craziest stories that I possibly know about. Hmm. Yeah, I'll try and weave them together in some coherent way. 
one of the core reasons that I wanted to hunt in the first place is speaking to some of the early stories with my dad and my the masculinity is I grew up and I felt so unprepared as a man. That was such a cornerstone uh, challenge that deep down was a motivation for me to hunt in the first place. I didn't really have the words for it at the time. And I kind of needed all of my, all that interesting backstory in order to set me up for that. I mean, that's kind of the trope. It's kind of cliche either way, but I can look back and see how all of those things lined up so perfectly. Perfect example is, and I can get into this a little bit more, but you know, I spent time in prison and because of that, I wasn't allowed to use a firearm. So when I went on my first hunt, it had to be archery, which meant so much more commitment, so much more intentionality behind it. And that, of course, helped me to, to have the experience the first time that was actually transformative. And yeah, like I said, there was growing up, one of the reasons I went to prison was just this what does it mean to be a man question that sent me in my adolescent years to feel like the acquisition of attractive white women sexually was what it meant to be a man. Mm -hmm. And long story short, because I've said it a million times, I stole some historical documents when I was 19 so that I could go be with a woman in Europe because I just was so eaten up by this need to to be a man in the way that I erroneously thought. Came back to the United States after two years, got arrested, and eventually spent six months in prison uh, for an eight-year uh, sentence. And six months is a considerable period of time and gave me a lot of learning about self-responsibility, self-sovereignty. The second half of my experience in prison and the first half were completely different. The first half, it was almost like a scientific experiment because it's the exact same situation, same place, same food, same environment, same everything. The first half was resistance, was counting down the days, was trying to numb myself through anything that was somewhat pleasurable that I could get my hands on. And the second half was, I am here. That's his reality. And what's the way that I can be empowered to you know, read the right kind of books, work out in a certain way, eat a certain way, use my time a certain way. And so there's a lot of this, this foundation of, well, clearly this behavior that I that I committed to to define what masculinity was is not accurate. And so that sent me on this quest. Yeah. And that is really what put me in touch with hunting. And then even as I There's a couple of things that I want to highlight quick at that part that I think will be useful. One is cliches are cliches because they're true when they're gnosis 
and they're lies when you regurgitate them, but because they're so true, a lot of us regurgitate them before we've experienced it, and that's why it's a cliche. And uh, one of the quote-unquote cliches, like one of the most stirring things that I've ever read is, are you familiar with Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning? Yeah. That a man in Auschwitz who his family has been murdered and his people have been decimated. Uh, if he can write the line that uh, the last of the human freedoms is man's ability to choose his disposition or his attitude in any given situation, it's like whenever my life feels hard, man, if I remember that, there's this uh, twinge of soft like shame with a huge fire of like motivation and hope and your prison story is that spirit is the spirit of i am taking responsibility for what is and taking responsibility for doing the best of nurturing my becoming given the situation that i'm in because there's always a choice there's a great quote by jordan peterson and it's uh you can always make it worse you can choose an attitude that makes wherever you are worse. And you can always choose an attitude to make wherever you are a little bit more beautiful because the human spirit is coming through it. The other thing that came to mind that uh, I would be transgressing myself if I didn't share was the joke that uh, if those historical documents ended up sending you on an adventure, that's the beginning of a superhero movie. So that's pretty cool. But um, you know, uh, you served your time and you learned don't steal historical documents. Um, but there's nuggets in that, that disposition. C clearly my 18, 19 year old tuning knob was not well tuned, but there was as ridiculous as it sounds, there was in me something that just said yes. And that now that I've tuned it a little bit better at 31, that's the part of me that still says yes to following things that don't make much logical sense. But I'm going to go to East Russia during the war that Russia is having with Ukraine. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Is there anything from that period of your life that you want to touch on before we get into the really cool story that you've adventured on to Russia? No, that feels complete, although I'm sure there'll be components that start to weave themselves mm -hmm. into the most recent trip that I had. Yeah, cool. So uh, set the stage for us. Well, we're looking at part of the stage, this book, The Tiger by John Valent. Ryan Holiday actually recommended it. And it's such a, it's just a narrative. I mean, it's, it's a true story, but it's, about a very specific situation in the 1990s in Far East Russia. And for some reason, the book connected to me at such a deep and visceral level that I still don't really understand. I have many friends that I recommended it to who thought it was okay, but you know, it didn't strike them in the same way. And I just kept listening to it and kept, and kept finding such an awe and stirring feeling about the 
the the awe of these majestic creatures and maybe there's some part of me that was able to just really connect to the little boy that was in me that was enamored by animals which i think almost every child is pretty enamored by animals at, at some part of their development but i just allowed myself to feel the awe that and that i kept falling a quick question what was how old were you when you interacted with your first wild animal well that when i was any- 8 years old i went to india and there's so many wild animals constantly i mean, i mean monkeys stealing my stuff and interacting with me while i was 8 so i would say that was Heard. yeah and india is a wild place just yeah. even when it's domesticated it's wild because the reason i ask that question is uh children might have that archetypical channel open as a default but most people in this domesticated zoo culture literally have zero examples with an actual wild animal that's not encaged you know like i didn't have a single wild animal experience with any type of animal that could uh pose any type of harm to me so like not even a snake you know like no snake no wolf no bear no not even a deer you know like i didn't go hunting or anything so like that channel was just not something that got fed um for me and i think it's probably true for a lot of people that grow up in this culture totally especially in a city right which i grew up in as well and i was very disconnected from wild animals minus these little you know excursions because my mother would take me traveling places because one of the things that i have experienced recently when i've had a few moments with wild animals with you know kind of like fresh eyes that can come from psychedelics and other things that might be taboo because people don't want fresh eyes is that um there's this like arresting that happens that feel so um, I've had experiences with psychedelics where it feels like I was looking at a force that is now a deja vu force when I look into the eyes of a wild animal. And it's this simultaneous feeling of uh, terror and awe. Or like terror and uh, like radical arresting because I'm in the presence of beauty. That feels, there's, an, there's a neurophysiological hypothesis that awe is the simultaneous feeling of terror and like rapture. And that um, when those two things mix together, we get the true depth of the feeling of awe. And the only thing in waking three-dimensional life that matched that feeling of looking at like the source or a god or whatever what was wild animals and i think that that's an like there's this thing that happens where if you grow up inside of a city or a neighborhood everything is designed to be in proportion to the human body and i think that does something I think that creates a type of sickness to the ego where the ego is not put in its proper place in the cycle of life 
because our houses are built in proportion to us. All of our tools are built in proportion to us. And it gives this inflated sense of ego on a very subtle level. Like even to live in air conditioning is the sense of like, we are the masters of the environment. But like, if you live in a place with a mountain or if you live next to an ocean or, you know, like great redwoods where the trees tower over you or in the presence of wild animals, or if you don't get to have air conditioning for six months or whatever it is, we make contact with the part of nature that helps regulate our self-importance and like puts us, just like we were talking about dogs earlier, like um, the dog feels safer when it feels that there's a leader and that like, it's almost like the ego can rest when it's in the presence of a mountain, you know, that reminds it like you are not the master of the universe. Yeah, that is God in, in my line of thinking reflecting back the right. the correct proportions of our place on the planet i'm just realizing right now but awe is in god mm. like the sound awe if mm -hmm. you say god and it's like god yeah interesting i'm 31 and i haven't made that connection until now that's cool so to circle back to one of my previous points before i cut you off i'm sorry no i love it i i can track it and come back to it when i had this upwelling desire to be in the presence of god that's that's genuinely how i believed it and when and not i couldn't articulate it at the time but that was deep down what, what i was feeling when that is the source of the motivation i want to be in the presence of god in this particular way then I'll move mountains. I don't give a crap about anything. Please, for the rest of this podcast, if you have the urge to say fuck, say fuck <laughs> and don't say crap. Yeah. I don't give a fuck. I'm moving mountains. Let's yeah. go, Monsel. All right. So, but I have been caged before. Yeah. And there is nothing worse to me and there's nothing that I really fear is not the right word but feel sadness in seeing another that's caged and so the idea of going into a zoo or anything like that or some kind of a theme park or something like that to see tiger there's more there's literally more tigers in texas i've heard this statistic i don't know that it's true there's supposedly more tigers in texas that are uh, in captivity than in the wild but for me that's not an option so the the desire was to go to far east russia to be in the presence to have an audience with god and you know i create meaning around all that a lot you're human i'm i'm human and my belief system is very animist so i want to connect with this being and as you know i've worked for 7 years with will tagle and he is very oriented towards a more animist perspective and he's taught me all different types of you know methods of connecting with different spirits and to me it just feels so much more alive to have a god that is alive and see what's reflected back to me for my own learning and so that was kind of the genesis of why i wanted to go to far east russia now this trip was planned you know a year two years 
and advance. to connect for people the reason you were called is that there was something inside of you that was calling to the specific reflection of god as the siberian tiger that there was something specific about that version of god that something inside of you that you don't understand was basically letting you know that you don't have a choice yeah on the one hand i don't understand it on the other hand this is the largest cat in the world six to seven hundred pounds nine feet long i mean I'm amazed that other people, when I tell them about the Siberian tiger, that they don't also want to just go see it. It's incredible. It's, it's, and there's, there's 500 of them left. Uh, yeah, they're some of the most beautiful things and the most uh, amazing creatures that, and I can, that's a whole other podcast. I'll save it. Yeah. And just real quick, one of the things that I want to touch on for people is, if you orient your inner center to the spirit of the depths, you will have this experience where there's a thing inside of you that bring that demands a call to a quest. And you, you have the illusion that you get to choose, but you actually don't get to choose because it's either choose it or be haunted in a way that, you know, is the source of many of our nightmare stories about demons and ghouls and all that type of shit. I think it's when the daemon is ignored. And uh, you're where you are because you've learned to say yes. Right. And I have a pretty close relationship with that full circle death. I mean, part of my hunting practice is a consistent reminder of my own death that just creates a realization of finality for me and so the idea that i would not follow that voice is kind of foreign 100 so trip was set to go to far east russia and every mm. the trip was set a year and a half ago wow yeah so wow. things were moving and covid changed the timeline on it etc and you know, my whole initial hunting experience that I went on with my bow that I talked about that was transformative, the first one, it was bookended by ayahuasca retreats. And as my teacher Will says, the plants chose me for that particular thing. So accidental. I don't I don't think it was accidental that the timing showed up during the war. And Coincidence is one of the words that we accept to gaslight ourselves. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm still coming to terms with all of the gifts that came from the experience, but one of the things that was most true that I can share with you now that I'm so grateful for is on that 70-hour trip to russia to far east russia we had to go an incredibly long period of time because once the war broke out all the sanctions took over and there was only one route into the country and in fact our plane from dubai so we had to go all the way across the world through the middle east our plane from dubai into moscow was the last plane into the country so the airlines that we flew were saying they're not flying into wow. the country anymore. and so it's like 
going into you know Star Wars, the scene where they're they're going into the giant worm or something, it felt like that. And that was outside of a plant medicine experience. That was one of the closest feelings of God that I've ever experienced was traveling into the country. And part of it was we don't really have an opportunity other than maybe people who go to war to have everything really tested, have this is what I want to do, this is what I want to create, and this is part of my dharma. And data talks a lot about like what are as men, what are we, or as the masculine expressing itself, what are we willing to die for? But I have never had that opportunity to actually check in with that. And in this situation, you know, in retrospect, I think death was probably a little dramatic, but in that moment, I had no idea. And so it was genuinely, am I willing to lose my freedom? Am I willing to lose my life? Am I willing to put myself in significant right. bodily harm? <laughs> Any motherfucker who is listening to this that thinks that that's dramatic, if you've been on a plane that has had even 5% more turbulence than you're used to, you're like, oh, I'm going to die. And uh, <laughs> I wish there was someone on the, listening to this podcast who would voice that that's dramatic and just have a quick purview through their life about what has been the most truly testing thing that they've ever done. But actually my intuition is that there's probably no one listening that thinks that that's dramatic in a way that they wouldn't also be dramatic. Yeah. And everything conspired to, to make it so. I had people sending me articles about Americans being arrested as yep. political prisoners and things like that. And it was beautiful. Just a quick side note. One of the things that I've been tracking that is uh, incredibly disturbing is things that end up on the most popular websites that aggregate news sources. I'm seeing a trend where often one of the most popular posts that are like a source of outrage if you do even a little bit of searching and you find the origin of that post, it comes from like a satirical Facebook group that is dedicated on making outrage style posts against one type of group that then becomes this fire igniting spread through whatever zeitgeist threads of people that are like, fuck those type of people. And that like, what percentage of the people in this country have beliefs about a group of people that if they were in complete power, they would do genocidal type actions if they had the competence and the power to do so. They have never actually gone to those places, have had conversations with those people, have experienced what they do in community how they take care of each other, how they navigate the vicissitudes of the human experience that is going to bring all of us illness and death and grief and pain and trauma. And that, um, you know, how many people in the world had a certain belief about Russia and that you got to feel all of their fear and then you actually got to go to the place that they were fearing 
from the digital symbols that they were interacting with. And so I'm really curious, what was the, what was the stark comparison between the zeitgeist story of the people sending you all these articles and what you were seeing online and what you experienced in person? Yeah, I wrote a whole post about it and it was the polar opposite of really what I expected based on everything in the United States. I found that Russian authorities were helpful. They were seeking to understand first what we were doing, why we were doing it. And once they could understand it, uh, had no problem welcoming us into the country. I found that the, the civilians, the people were by and large incredibly open-minded and loving towards Americans. I can't tell you the number of times because I was in a relatively remote part of Russia that Americans don't visit. It's not like Moscow, where people were just amazed and interested that I was American and wanted to know why I was there and wanted to learn about you know, me and what I was doing. And I think some of that owes to my darker skin color because I've heard some stories of the Russian zeitgeist towards Americans being you know, its own thing. But my lived experience was my lived experience and also my knowledge of Russians and having been to Russia before is that it, it, it's a, it's a really beautiful culture and a really, um, hardy and hardworking and genuine people. And that's what I experienced. Yeah. One of the things that is, there's, a uh, realm of like there's a veil of perception that if you like study cognitive psychology or maybe you travel a lot or just through years and years of lived experience you'll start to appreciate that there's this veil of perception that you cannot get beyond unless you go do the thing or go to the place or talk to the people. And that the way that our consciousness seems to be constructed and bounded by just the amount of processing power that our brains have is that we create incredibly low resolution maps to try to map the world. And that the evolutionary programming style that we've been given from the selection process of evolution binds our perception so drastically that if you start to make contact with how bounded your perception is, it's borderline like schizophrenic inducing. And that one of the great graces that people have to learn if they go deep into like psychedelic experiences or whatever, is just coming to terms with the fundamental boundedness and limit and biasness of our perceptual systems to make sense of the world. And that 99.999% of reality is something that you will never be able to make contact with through news articles, books, data, statistics, pundits, movies, books, 
announcements, even conversations with other people. And it seems to be the case that the majority of the humans on this planet are genuinely good, are genuinely trying to do what they think is best, care about their family, want the world to be better, and want to make their life better. And that there's such this, this strong disposition right now in our culture to draw such stark lines between my group and the group I don't like. That I think is an interesting echo of the Judeo-Christian split of good and evil. That uh, like if our primary mythological characters, if there was a trickster in there, there might be a slightly less potent urge to jump to, oh, these people, they're evil. And as soon as you paint someone as evil, you get to do evil and justify it. Mm -hmm. There's a, yeah, I, one of the things that I do believe prison gave me is a, is a relatively good understanding that people can do things or behave in a certain way that's not irredeemably evil. I think that's the key word. I completely agree. And that was one of the, when I wrote this article, that was one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize as it pertained to Putin, because, you know, without becoming too geopolitical with it, the the whole narrative right now is is framing him in a way as evil moving towards you know framing him like hitler and things like that and the way we see someone is the way they behave and the way they behave is what they become something along those lines there's a great quote by goethe and it's uh see a man as he is and he is destined to stay as he is he is see a man as he can become and he has a chance to become what he could be right and, and we could all and use just practice a real, for that. Right. And just a real quick point to that. If someone does something that transgresses you, if you hold the disposition that they are unredeemable, that there is no chance for redemption, their only options are to fight you or to kill themselves. Right. Like that's a really, like at the bottom of it, when you hold someone in a place where they are unredeemable and they know it from you. Their only option is to either resist you or to kill themselves. And I don't think any human psyche can bear the weight of condemning someone to killing themselves. Uh, I don't know what it feels like, but I would imagine that that's something that the human soul cannot bear. And if the other person that you're holding in the unredeemable category, whatever weapons they have access to, if they choose to fight instead of killing themselves, they will use those weapons. There's a quote by the person who wrote the War of Art, or no, the Art of War. Uh, Kenzu. Yes. And it's a build a golden bridge for your enemy to retreat on. And that's still in the metaphor of war. But I think like, especially if it's someone, like if it's a family member or an ex-partner or a coworker or whatever, 
If there's anyone in your life that you're holding in the category of unredeemable, take a moment to feel the weight of the position that you're putting them in, you know? And I really think that the counterbalance to this urge to cancel has got to be this flourishing of this potential for redemption. You know, because we're doing a weird thing now with like as more and more of our souls become represented by our digital identities, when we cancel someone's digital identity, it is a type of murder. It's a type of killing. And to um, have someone like cast out of the digital commons with the disposition of you are unredeemable. I think that that's how you turn the wounded into the monstrous. Wow. So you're in Russia. They're not as terrible as you were fearing they might be. Then what happened? I spent a week tracking Siberian tigers and weather was minus 20 to minus 30 degrees. Lord. And I was with basically what I would consider to be a mentor in conservation. His name's Alexander Batalov, and he's 70 years old. He's dedicated the last 40 years of his life to the Siberian tiger, and he has this preserve. And the grace with which he does his work and commits to his work is inspiring to me. He basically leases land so the government still allows logging on the land that he is preserving, which is baffling that he maintains such a disposition because that's the number one threat to the tiger is logging. And he is yeah, such an inspiration for how he sees the loggers who are there as people and understands they have families and interacts with them. And so just getting to spend a, a concentrated period of time without cell phone access and just being in his presence was powerful. And, you know, the, I'm not sure if it was, yeah, I think it was Wineland who kind of expressed that the masculine learns more through osmosis with, Oh, yeah. elders than like you know words per se so i think the source of that is actually robert bly from iron john where he talks about uh men need the mana of men who are mentors and that just being in their presence there's this and i've absolutely experienced that in my life totally and that's what it was like to be with alexander i mean this is a man who there are mines, there are logging, there's natural resource extraction that the mafia is really involved in and in, Russia. in Russia. And the Russian mob have come to him and said, you need, as a very well-respected man who makes a lot of difference in the way that policy is made in this area of the world, you need to change your belief or you are going to not exist anymore and his response is if i'm not afraid of the tiger why should i be afraid of you 
that kind of commitment and 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 determination for what he believes in in the face of imminent danger is something that is to me it's a it's a north star to orient my life towards 100%. and yeah being with him was amazing and then we essentially were creating a, a tv show so professionally and uh, and everything that i'm trying to create i i'm on so to speak in order to follow the story that's happening and not in a leisurely way but in a actual like this this is i'm trying to create something there's there's art here and it doesn't always look like a painting in terms of the artistic process but it's definitely my art is storytelling through this medium and then of course there was just the being in the physical presence of these creatures which was my highest excitement and when i hunt animals something that i encourage everyone who attends my experiences and just everyone in general who who hunts i name all of the animals that i kill and i name them so that there is uh more of a connection there's uh there's less of a uh you know not dehumanization but you understand what i'm saying like de disassociation yeah. yeah disassociation and he names the tigers the first person i've ever met Interesting. who names i love shit like that so just real quick to share like where my dharma expresses for me is it really feels like i hunt words and hunt ideas through old books that's really the way that I see it. And one of my great like Dharma crumbs that are some of the best foods that I can find along the way is when a great mind from the past that I don't know anything about, I get called to go hunt their ideas. And then I find that they do or see a thing the way I see a thing that I felt I came to just by like listening to the whisper inside of me. And it truly is one of the most like, it feels like it's a micro religious moment where it's like, there is, oh yeah, there's something else. There's something above and beyond and around and underneath this human thing that I'm doing. And I'm like, I'm on the right track. And so it feels like I have a unique appreciation for that feeling and just congratulations. Like that's, that's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, and it builds the it allows me to build a connection with that animal. And like I said, I create meaning th through my relationships with a lot of these animals. And, and so there, there was one <clears throat> female tiger, her name is Jolta Boca. And she, we saw her on different cameras that we set up and, and it, to me, I, I had gone through a bunch of these practices of connecting with a tiger before I even went. And so I told you about the practice I, that Will has taught me where I, in a hypnagogic state in my dream, you know, dream space, I'll connect with the tiger asking it questions. And one of the phrases that came up before I even went to Russia was, the only way is up. And Will helped me to see the, you know, the relationship to nature. Like we've hit kind of a, 
rock bottom in a lot of ways in terms of our uh, disconnection from nature and that we we have this opportunity to to rise in our oneness with it and again all my my myth, storytelling of my own myth that I create but to be in the present I was like this was the being that I was connected with and having that strong sense of connection and again God God is manifested in this form that I'm particularly drawn to and I'm connecting with and Alexander conservationist so connected with me he named Jolta Boca's cub Monsel. whoa that's fucking awesome so there's this Siberian tiger that's two years old and she's and and he's big he's bigger than his mom but at two years old yeah whoa he's a big boy (laughs) and he's kind of got my disposition too when he sees cameras on the trees he just goes over and tears them off (laughs) but he there was something in relationship to naming that a it just feels special and awesome to have a siberian tiger named after me but also he is soon to leave his mother to be out on his own and there was a certain rite of passage that came from this experience connection to the mother not my real mother but the proverbial mother mother nature so funny that you say that's not your real mother lol but i know what you mean <laughs> that felt important for my own myth 100 i'm currently reading some really good fiction uh neil gaiman um deep recommendation to anyone listening if you're into the mythopoetics that i'm into neil gaiman's work specifically the sandman uh graphic novel series and american gods the novel But what good fiction does for me is it uh, reanimates my mythic thinking and bring it out of my like academic mind and actually permeate my lived experience. And that one of the stories that I listened to today was that uh, there were these um, like children that like had the spirit of some African gods in them and they were born twins. And uh, whatever happened to one twin would actually start to happen to the other one. So uh, they were African children and it was during the slave trade days and they got abducted and they were put into slavery and they were uh, separated from each other. It was a boy and a girl. And uh, like I cried listening to this story this morning because it was just raw and true and just a level of carnage and hurt that really feels like an like a dream that we try to forget but um the boy at one point got his arm cut off because he was uh ignored enough where it got like infected and the you know the best surgery that they offered him was just to cut his arm off the woman's arm started to wither away and just like one of the like mythological motifs that the story was hinting at is that like when two people are bound together in a mythopoetically potent way, uh, non-locally, they're still connected. And just the thing that's coming to mind is there's probably this interesting 
if we want to get mythopoetic about it, maybe a part of you is now bound to that creature. And as that creature grows and transforms and goes through its rites of passage, there will be a thing that will happen in you and vice versa. And maybe I just cast a spell on you. And maybe now, if it wasn't true before, it's even more true now. And maybe we don't know how language works. And maybe it's language that makes magic. I don't know. I don't know either, but I know that my connection to... my commitment to that part of the world is changed and it feels like it's because of the relationship to both Joltaboka and her cub. 100%. What has it been like coming back? Challenging. Now, not so much. Now, in this moment, I... How many weeks has it been since you've been back? I've been back for a little over two weeks, maybe close to three weeks now. And... As soon as I came back, I, f I felt off. I felt uh, slower. I felt less content, less at peace. I found myself uh, gravitating towards different numbing mechanisms that are you know, particularly um, compelling to, to my ego. And perhaps most problematic, I found myself really resisting that feeling of offness. And partially because I, for me, if I can understand why I feel off, if I can explain or create a story around why I feel off, which I usually can, there's usually a, a, a rationale for it that I can explain, it actually feels much easier to accept it and then move through it and just feel it. But I felt so confused and so, um, yeah, just uh, didn't understand why I would have such an expansive experience and then come back and feel contractive. And in retrospect, it makes sense. Expansion, contractions, part of the universe. But And then on some level, uh, Western civilization is uh, a container if you have the story that you're willingly inside of it and a cage, if you have a story that you're unwillingly inside of it. And I would imagine that if you get to like drink from the life force of wild nature in any way, and then come back to these ticky tacky houses with our ticky tacky fences and our ticky tacky driveways, there's this, I think that we all have a very quiet screaming voice inside of us. That's like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And maybe it just gets a little bit louder and a little bit harder to quell when yeah. you taste something that feels right. I believe that is true. And that is initially what I thought was occurring. And I think to some degree that, that, that exists. What I've come to understand and again, narrate for my own life is that there's a certain helplessness that I felt in the plight of the tiger. There's 500 of them left and everything that's happening there that then became mirrored almost 100% in the next experience that I'm going to have in June down in Peru and Amazon with the jaguar that was 
in some ways leading to uh, another layer or death or grieving process within me because I was, here's this thing that was calling me, God is calling me and creating the, the deepest connection to higher power and source and oneness that I've felt in, in a very long time. And when I arrived there, I not only intellectually realized, but feel and understand at a, at, a, at, a, at a felt sense that I and everyone that I know is contributing to the death of this thing. Yeah. And that is, I've felt it before as I have hunted and and I have a pretty close relationship with nature, but I have until this point had a very close relationship with nature in America. And America is perhaps one of the places in the world where we have the resources that we've been able to prioritize a version of preserving uh, the wildness yeah. in our midst. Fucking Teddy Roosevelt, man. Yeah. And you know, just as a small aside, in Far East Russia, one of the greatest threats is logging. When they log wood, it is usually sold illegally or sometimes legally to the Chinese. And the Chinese turn that wood, as an example, into Ikea furniture that we buy in America. And so to have the felt again felt realization that we are still with our consumer habits able to see america and preserve it in certain ways and and do well by it but our ignorance is destroying some far off place is was challenging and grief inducing the thing that comes to mind for me is um and I think that this actually weaves some elements of what we've been talking about, but that it might be a specific characteristic that's highlighted by the Judeo-Christian mythos that uh, the struggle is worth it because we'll win on some level. Like we will make it through the apocalypse with Armageddon, you know, like our people will make it through. And that what I've heard from you is that the specific quality in your mentor, Alexander, that you most admired was his grace in the face of what seemed hopeless. And yet he still did it as well as he could. And it seems to be that uh, if you take the mythopoetic lens of like the daemon and that there's a force inside of you that's bringing you towards your destiny, that the just right new mentor was introduced just as the just right new problem that your old assembly of mentors could not have alchemized. And now you're in a period of your life, which honestly feels like it's the period of my life that I've been contending with for the last nine months at my own like immature level of, there is a task before me that I feel called to give my life to trying to make better and it might not work but I'm still gonna do it the best I possibly can. And it feels like the uh, alchemy, at least one piece of the alchemy for you is to like really meditate on integrating the 
grace that Alexander has about how can I do my best in the face of something that, you know, might not work. Yeah, my mind goes to multiple things when you say that. One, Will is on his way out mm. of his earth physical form. And it's interesting that another mentor has shown up. Coincidence is one of the words we've invented to gaslight ourselves. <laughs> yeah. And one of my favorite Russian proverbs, hope dies last. And it's a constant reminder that I've had in my life and is something that I try to, to, to lead the part of my life that is trying to, trying to save and preserve, even if it doesn't work, it's just that that grace comes from a true visceral understanding that the last thing that dies is hope. And the interesting thing that my mind is doing is I think most people will hear that proverb and think that the most enduring thing is hope. That might be true, but I also think what's also true is that as soon as hope dies, everything else dies. So it's not just that hope is the most enduring force but it's that it's the prerequisite for any other life to be happening is there has to be hope. And there's this idea, I forget who brought it up originally, but I learned about it through Jimmy Wheel's book, Recapturing the Rapture, which is a big recommendation to everyone listening, is uh, this idea of radical hope. And radical, so there's a really great story of, uh, I forget his first name, but there was a prisoner of war, his last name was Stockdale. And the famous story is that him and his uh, men were captured, I think it was Vietnam, and they were prisoners of war, and they were in prison for a couple of years. And Stockdale eventually, he made it out and he shared his story. And he said that the pessimists died first, but then the optimists died second. So the pessimists died right away because they didn't have hope. But the optimists were doing this thing where they were... Um, with complete disregard for the truth of their situation, they would just pick the next significant holiday as like, we'll be out by. And as that date came and they weren't, their hope slowly started to falter and then they eventually died off. And then the group that made it was the group that had uh, what Stockdale tried to articulate. And I think Jamie Wheel elucidated as radical hope and it's the idea of, we will make it out but I don't know when and we're going to treat every day as if we will make it out and that we also don't know when and that um, we're in a, cult, a cultural zeitgeist that I think is hard for most people to appreciate, which is almost every generation has had their small pockets of often religiously oriented people that felt like the end times were their times. And we can look back as modern people and like just laugh them away, like clearly you were wrong. But we live at a time in our evolutionary and cultural history where um, it is reasonable 
to consider the inevitability based off of our best understandings that if we continue as we are going, we will extinct ourselves. And so it might not be our generation, but we're on this path to extinction with ecological collapse, nuclear war still being this thing that's just hanging over our heads, the emergence of AI, and then biological warfare is what the smart people at the forefront of what's called existential risk theory are like talking about. These are the inevitable the inevitable problems that we have to learn how to face. And that there really is this sense of like, uh, we, we really might not make it, but the last of the human freedoms is your ability to choose your attitude in any given situation and the way forward seems to require radical hope. And so you got a microcosm of what I think is happening at the macro. I believe so. And that process that I was in after I came back from Russia and interspersed throughout the last five years of my life have been the grieving of that possibility that we don't make it out, which I think is a prerequisite to radical hope. Is grieving the possibility. I love that. Yeah, is to grieve the possibility that you're magically the chosen people. And one of the great gifts that I find of hunting is that for a lot of us, myself included, it's very challenging for me to feel the grief of a collective amorphous earth. It is very possible for me to feel the grief of the family of deer that's looking and sniffing their loved one that I just killed that was writhing on the ground and is struggling in pain. The grief that I experience from that deer becomes a portal to all the grief. And that's why it's a practice. Oh. What is a send-off sentiment that you would love to share uh, with me and the audience? Mm. Yeah, I, I think the hope dies last is that's the thing that I in this new chapter that I'm moving into that's more conservation oriented, it is very much the, the phrase that is on the top of my mind at all, at all times. And no matter what that looks like, you know, I'm, I'm, I've come to a level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs where I can focus on a type of service with most of my life. But regardless of where someone who's listening to this is in their life, it's applicable. Because when I was in prison and I was thinking about when I was going to get out, I'll, I'll be out by this date, I'll be out by this date, I was struggling. And I could have used that wisdom of, of having radical hope regardless of the circumstances. So... It's so applicable and it's wisdom from a people and a culture that is currently being cast out mm. 
And so I think it's more applicable than ever now. Yeah, and the thing that I feel called to uh, add to the radical hope is one of the logs that sits at the bottom of the fire of radical hope is uh, the opportunity for redemption. You know, that like hope and redemption go log in flame, you know, if you will. And uh, to everyone listening, if there's anyone in your life that you've uh, removed hope of redemption from, I invite you to reconsider. I have something to add. Yeah. <laughs> so this idea of radical hope is actually a book that is uh, pretty important to me uh, around the Crow tribe in Montana. And the book is, I, I, would, I would encourage you to read it because it's, it's really about how to orient oneself in the face of annihilation. And in this specific example that he focuses on, there was, there was the, the Crow tribe, which was a very, just like all Plains tribes, very warlike in a lot of different ways. But they had a, a leader, Plenty Coup, who realized that in order for his people to have any chance of survival, they had to redefine what honor meant, what virtues meant. So it was a culture in which there is no surrender. If you, they literally had a practice where these elite warriors in the Crow tribe, when they were in battle, they would stake themselves into the ground. And that was their way of saying, this is my boundary and I will die here or you will die here. That's it. And he had to come and say that that essence of our culture, we have to redefine what courage is. Courage now in their world was we have to align ourselves with America and this vast empire that will engulf us. That's the only way to, to survive. And that's what they did. I mean, they're the, one of the most successful uh, indigenous tribes of the plains because they allied themselves with the Americans against the Lakota and things like that. But the whole book is really about that redefining of virtue for the new yeah. age. And that's a really important discernment practice that everyone has to be in to, you know, and many people had to redefine what courage meant during the COVID era. Yeah. And, and I think that is applicable yep. in the new phase. Yeah, the thing that I would add on top of that, um, I have a friend who is like studying the uh, esoteric ancient, like literature of um, the Torah, like the mystical side, like the Kabbalah, like the mystical side of uh, Judaism. And that there's this idea that, um, I forget the Hebrew words for it, but when someone is in the spirit of the God, when they're in the spirit of God, they have the right to um, do something that's not within the bounds of the Torah. And that 
one of the key mechanisms to allow the logos, like the animating force to continue to evolve, is that rule, which is essentially when someone is in their dharma, they have the right to update something that's ancient. And of course, it's a mythical disposition and there's all sorts of ways where the ego might try to hijack that to do X, Y, and Z. But I think it's a beautiful mythopoetic thing that sits and resonates with what you're sharing is that likely to survive, our culture is going to have to redefine, you know, uh, what success is, is probably one of the big ones. If your definition of success does not include being a regenerative force for the earth, that's probably not going to last. If your definitions of success are predicated on the primary God being money, that's not going to work. Um, there's a quote, I think it's by, I think it was Jung commenting on Nietzsche, you know, that Nietzsche was commenting on God is dead. Uh, and he wasn't saying that as a proclamation. He was saying that as a warning that uh, now we are going to have to be, for better or for worse, responsible for creating our own gods and our own religions. And I think for better or for worse, we live in a time where uh, we are responsible for potentially redefining things that the generations before us didn't have the pressure to have to redefine. So good luck, everyone. Uh, we will continue to offer conversations and shit of us trying to do our best. Monsel, this was fucking dope. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, thank you for listening to your Dharma. And this was super beautiful. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. And I feel as though I have learned more about myself in your reflections and questions. So thank you. Well, then it worked. Love you guys. <laughs>